You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As protests demanding racial justice galvanized the nation, Aurora James, founder and creative director of Brother Bellies, devised her own initiative to address inequality. The 15% Pledge is a nonprofit organization that challenges retailers to commit 15% of their inventory to Black-owned businesses and provide mentorships for emerging brands. Major brands like Sephora and Rent the Runway have already signed on. In this episode, we'll hear James talk about the campaign and plans to include grants and programming as a part of the pledge. Let's listen. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, the fashion critic for the Washington Post, and it is my great pleasure to spend some time this afternoon with Aurora James, the founder and creative director of Brother Valleys. Hi, Aurora. Hi, Robin. How are you? I am good. It's very nice to see you. And I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, Brother Valleys and the 15% pledge. And I, I feel like in order for people to really understand sort of the genesis of the 15% pledge, they need to know a little bit about Brother Valleys and your decision to create that brand and bring it into the fashion space. So can you give people just a little bit of a background about of what Brother Bellies is? Sure, yeah. So I created Brother Bellies in January 2013. Um, I, my father was born and raised in Ghana, and I had spent a bunch of time traveling um, South Africa, Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria, um, and I just kind of started paying attention to what they were wearing there and um, some of the traditional artisan work that was essentially dying out. And I kind of, you know, it broke my heart because I knew in the fashion industry, like we spent so much time sort of recreating these aesthetics, but uh, we weren't necessarily doing it with the actual artisans who are responsible for. Um, creating some of some of that beauty in the first place. So uh, I started working first on a traditional shoe called a bell spoon, um, a veli, which we now call it, which is the original desert boot um, and is traditional to Southern Africa, specifically South Africa and Namibia. And I started working with a workshop there that was at risk of closing. And I took the money that I had, which was $3,500, and I sat down with them and I was like, okay, let's tweak it in this way. And um, I met with the whole supply chain and saw, you know, the vegetable dyes that they were using on the leather and that the leather was a byproduct from the farmers who were there and um, just like learned all about it and, and, and um, put together a small batch of shoes and brought them back to New York, the Hester Street Fair in the Lower East Side, started selling them. Um, and we met shortly thereafter. <laughs> We did, and I am, and I think it's really important that people uh, understand that when you started your business, you really one had an understanding, a keen understanding of the inspiration and the craftsmanship that comes out of Black communities, and you also had a really good understanding of the supply chain, and then also taking things to retail. So all of that, how did all of that experience spark the idea for the 15% pledge? 
Yeah, I mean, Brother Valley's fundamentally, when we look at it, it was created because I realized that Black artisans were not being supported, that they were culturally being exploited, and that the marketplace needed to change uh, in order to support them. And now, since it's been a month since I created the 15% pledge, it's very obvious that this movement is sort of the same thing. 40% of Black-owned businesses are estimated to have to close their doors because of the pandemic. Um, we see that Black culture uh, is largely being pulled and exploited without being properly um, celebrated and compensated. And so my ask is that these large retailers across the country commit to steps towards economic equality by giving us 15% of their purchase power, also known as shelf space. And it's truly, those parallels are very similar. And two things about that stand out to me. I mean, one, the very specific numerical percentage and also the fact that this is not limited to sort of the, the top of the fashion pyramid, you know, that sort of rarefied, super expensive, high-end designer realm. I mean, this is really aimed at connecting with as many people as possible and showing and, and, and giving people the breadth of what's out there. What is the, what is the significance of the number of 15%? Yeah, I chose 15% because Black people in America are almost 15% of the population. So it, it, to me, it was easy to draw that line and say like, okay, this is what would be fair. Um, and I knew intuitively just as a business owner that there was no way that these um, retailers were anywhere close to that number. Um, and now as we start looking at what the numbers are, yeah, like most of them are sitting, um, you know, one to two percent on average. So that representation is not there. As you've investigated this, have you gotten any sense from retailers of why it is that those numbers, that percentage is so low? Is it just a matter of they're not make, making a conscious effort? Is it a matter of same old, same old? They just keep going back to the same suppliers that they have become familiar with? Or is there a pipeline issue and that just black owned companies are not able to get in front of those retailers for a variety of reasons? I think it's a little bit of all of those categories. Um, for sure, I would say that a lot of these companies have buyers that have been in these roles for a really long time and aren't incentivized to seek out um, new brands. I think that also in fashion, the way that we talk about designers and the way that we find designers is, um, you know, there's a lot of gatekeepers there who are looking for a certain type of thing. And I think that there are a lot of people that uh, are inspired by certain types of people and maybe not other types of people. And yes, like there's a little bit of a pipeline, but that's because we've created that pipeline issue um, in the fashion industry, not just with designers, but in every level, you know, it's like to get into the fashion industry largely 
you need to intern and then you get a job. And, you know, how can you afford to intern for free in New York City if you're not coming from generational wealth? I don't know. So there's a number of factors with fashion specifically that I think, you know, are problematic and need to be addressed. And those are all conversations that we're having. But I really think that for the most part, these retailers are just like, you know, they want what's hot. The, the magazines are dictating like what's, you know, hot. And it tends to be like just the same stuff over and over and over again. And, um, you know, there's a serious lack of, of real diversity in terms of the brands that are getting like major buys. Have you found that in some ways because the the fashion industry economy is in such dire straits, is in such upheaval, that in, in some ways that's that actually works for you because in the midst of so much upheaval, there is greater willingness to to look elsewhere for answers. And, and to look at at undiscovered, at least for these retailers, talent. Mm, I think for a lot of the retailers, they're like, because, because there's so much upheaval right now and because a lot of them are losing so much money, they actually want to lean even more on the brands that they know that are just going to perform really well for them and maybe even take less risks. I think that uh, it takes really special people right now to, you know, look at the breakage and be like, this is an opportunity to rebuild in a new shape versus like, what is the tried, tested and true band-aid that we can put on things? Um, which I think is a, what a lot of them are trying to do. And I think they're also kind of just trying to, like, a lot of them are just trying to um, get through this. They're like, oh, this is just a lot. This is crazy. Like, we're just trying to make a statement and kind of get through it. And you know, talk about like next season and, and, you know, move on. And for me, I know that taking the pledge is not only the right thing to do, I believe that it's also good business. You know, the people want this. We have 100,000 people that have told us that they want this to happen um, in our petition and our community chain, like all of that. So um, I just think that it's on these retailers to start actually realizing that and ultimately Robin if they don't you know we're going to see them start dying out as we've already seen so it's up to them whether or not they want to get on board and actually be culturally relevant when when you guys have made this argument to them has have, have you also had that conversation that that was part of social media in which People were really frustrated that brands were posting uh, Instagram images of solidarity with Black Lives Matter, with uh, racial justice, and then you know you would look at their track record and see that there really had there's there had been very little evidence of inclusivity within the company. So I mean, are they? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. That's like, that's exactly how the pledge was started. You know, I was like sitting in my house, getting all of these emails and seeing these Instagram posts on my thread from these brands that were saying things. And it felt so empty to me, like incredibly empty. And so, you know, I was receiving these messages in two ways as a black woman and also as a black business owner. And I was seeing it, but I wasn't feeling it. And 
the the business owner of me needed to put a metric on what would make me feel like they actually meant what they were saying and that was how i made that parallel with the 15 percent pledge and created that and put it on instagram i had no intention that day when i posted it of actually like launching a nonprofit. i was truly just like this is what i need people are texting me you know that work at these different companies and all all these different people are like what should we do and i just wanted to put out a like an ask like this is what I need you to do. This is what you can do for us. This will mean something. Um, because very rarely are these like clear asks made. And so I made it and I wanted to give them the opportunity to meet that ask with action in a long-term accountable way. Um, and then also be very aware of the retailers that were not willing to make that commitment. And 15% truly is the least that they can do. Um, and, you know, when we actually engage with these retailers, like there's three core steps um, that we ask everyone do. Uh, the first is about taking stock. And that's where we actually ask that people do an audit internally, not just of their shelf space, also of their C-suite, you know, also of their retail and corporate. We've seen a lot of these retailers will have, you know, 50% people of color on their retail floor, but then 6% in corporate. Um, that's horrible. <laughs> that like shows a problem. Like I, I you know, they, they'll also score really high in their marketing. Like they'll have, you know, 30% of their models will be black, for example, but then they'll have like no board members that are black. So that's optical allyship. Um, you know, what are you doing to, to support your pipeline from retail to corporate, I need to know. So these are all of the questions that um, we need to be addressed. Uh, but the first step is yes, doing the audit, taking stock, getting all those numbers. The second step is ownership and acceptance of what those numbers are. So we ask that people publish all of the numbers. You know, if you're Nordstrom, they have less than 1% of black owned businesses on their shelves right now. So you know, figuring out how did you get there? What part of it's systemic? What part of it's on your buy team? How are, um, how, like, how are you incentivizing buyers to actually seek out black owned businesses to make sure that you're diverse? Um, really looking at all of the ways and reasons how you ended up at the numbers that you have. And then three is the commitment to growth where we actually say and ask people, okay, which are all the different ways in which you are going to take the pledge? Are you taking it from an HR perspective? You're obviously taking it from a purchasing power perspective. Um, are you going to take it with your freelance creative talent? You know, all of the different ways and then actually benchmark out how they're doing that. So if you're at 1% right now, maybe you want to say we're going to double that every quarter. And then they actually have to check in with us and do an audit and make sure that they're hitting those benchmarks. So this is going to be, in many cases, a multi-year thing because we want to make sure as well that people are onboarding these Black-owned businesses in the right way and giving them the marketing support that they need as well so that we're like, you know, growing the next Fortune 500 company, not just filling a quota. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so companies can be sort of all in or they can be in on certain key points, or do they just do they have to commit to the full bushel of of changes? 
Yeah, good question. Well, I'm not, I didn't create it to be super prescriptive. So I don't want to tell everyone, this is exactly how you have to take it. Um, But like, there's no planet where, you know, we are not going to have the full breadth of these conversations. And, you know, I really want to make sure that people take it in as many ways as possible. Um, There are some businesses, for example, that just aren't hiring right now and have furloughed a bunch of people. So for them to say that they can hit certain metrics, you know, this year or next year when they're not hiring anyone at all is a little bit more complicated. But that's also why it's important that we keep doing these check-ins so that we can keep pushing them. Um, And as of right now, everyone's been really on board to, you know, do it in the right way, which is great. And, um, you know, on my end, even with, you know, the West Elms of the world, this is taking like, you know, we're spending a significant amount of time on it. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is in having these conversations where essentially you're saying to these brands in, in a very fundamental way, you need to be more creative with what you stock on your shelves. And it, it seems like in so many instances where companies, particularly retailers, have had financial troubles, if it hasn't been you know, related to just like pure real estate issues, it has often been related to the fact that what they were selling, customers just didn't want. Right. I mean, listen, it's a it's a big picture problem. Like, even for me, like, you know, I have a lot of these experiences with my own brand. If you bring in someone to buy Brother Bellies that doesn't understand what our brand is about, they're not going to buy it properly that assortment's not going to be good, it's not going to be represented properly, and then it's not going to sell properly. And then you're going to look at me and say that it's my fault, when really you didn't have a diverse enough buying team that even understood the collection to begin with. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, why are you only asking for shelf space? Why aren't you asking for more? And I think the beauty of the 15% pledge is that you actually can't do the shelf space thing unless you address your entire business at large. Um, and I think that's also, you know, what, what we are seeing, what these companies are seeing and, you know, it, it is just a start, um, but it is a really incredible, great start. And so far people have been like, you know, really rising, rising to the, uh, challenge. How important was it to get a a company like West Elm on board? One that is not in the fashion space and one that, um, you know, has a reputation for engaging with um, artisanal brands, bringing them on to a larger stage. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly important to me. I mean, I think all industries are so important to me. I actually didn't even think of fashion first um, when when it popped into my mind. The first place I thought was Target. I'm like, we need to support Black-owned businesses across all industries. You know, Whole Foods is also a huge one for me. Black farmers need support more than ever. Um, when we look at some of the systemic issues that happen with Black business owners like sharecropping, you know, um, it makes me think specifically of farmers. But that sort of thing happens across many different industries. I think that for me, as a Black business owner, who happens to be in the fashion space, I um, have a platform, be it, you know, 
not huge, but I have a platform. So I want to do what I can to advocate for other black owned businesses, you know, across the, across the spectrum. Um, because we all need it, you know, desperately 95% of black owned businesses didn't even get access to the first round of PPP money. When you were starting your business, how did you navigate some of the hurdles? I mean, one of the, the biggest, obviously, is, is the financing. And, uh, you know, people talk about the importance of, of economic capital, but in fashion, there's also uh, a certain importance that's placed on, on social capital as well. I mean, it, it's very much a, a who you know kind of business. So how did you navigate yeah. that? Ooh, such a like, that's like the, that's the one that hits me the hardest, um, Robin, because yeah, as I mentioned, I started my business with $3,500. Um, I was born in Canada, raised between Canada and Jamaica. I, you know, didn't know anyone when I moved here. Um, I barely knew anyone when I started Brother Valley's, otherwise I probably wouldn't have started it in the flea market. Um, and then when we won the fashion fund, things grew so quickly. Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't even have a credit card at that time. Um, and there were a number of different people that had like reached out to us that were like, oh, like, you know, we can like, you know, loan you money or like help in this way and help in that way. And for me, um, I ended up taking money from someone that I thought, you know, really was going to support me in the long term in a meaningful way. And, you know, that ended up not being the case. And it ended up, you know, costing me a lot. And there were choices that I was forced to make with my business really early on that I wouldn't have um, made otherwise. And, and, and I, yeah. You know, that part of it is really tough because in fashion, like we're not really taught to talk about things that aren't, you know, luxury, things that aren't aspirational, things that aren't amazing and beautiful. And I think, you know, it's hard because when you look at some people who are starting out, they have less resources than other people. It, it, it It's just tough. Fashion isn't a business that was set up. Um, to help people with nothing win. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I always find it striking that so many people who launch businesses within fashion, um, you know, they're not, they rarely, I don't know if, ever, if I've ever spoken to anyone who has started a business getting sort of a proper bank loan. It's always sort of cobbled together through friends and family or you know an angel investor or, or 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 some other avenue and then when it came to getting the brand into stores um, did you did you feel like you were speaking with with buyers who understood what they were looking at or was it a constant retelling of the narrative of the story of you know the the dna of the brand hmm, good question I wish I had an angel investor, by the way. It's always sounded so great, an angel. Like, where do you find those? I don't know, as a black woman, like, I just, it's so funny. Like, I don't have those around me. Um, but uh, good question with wholesale. So, uh, yeah, in the beginning, there was like a lot of, um, 
newsletters or like curated collections with my brand that'll that would be like you know out of the wild or like out of africa like you know these phrases um <laughs> that uh were kind of interesting but um yeah for sure and i think because we used a lot of texture early on too people were like oh this is very african it's very niche it's very trendy you know um and that was definitely hard for me to get around and that's something that i have also spoken to you know retailers about and also publications about too it's like the way that you position these brands it's like as a as a black designer you're basically either like urban or african and that's kind of just it there's not a lot of other ways to be and even within the african narrative like you know when people do those those editorials it's mainly like my brand and then like you know a, a like white brand that like makes things in africa sometimes or something which is you know a whole different conversation I'm wondering how um, optimistic you are feeling in this moment. Um, I mean, it, it does feel like it's an opportunity for change. And at the same time, I think about an industry that uh, will go down, you know, a rabbit hole to find some, you know, young white male designer that they heard about on Instagram but seem to find it very challenging uh, to make the effort to look at, investigate, embrace uh, designers of color, specifically black designers. Yeah. So I'm wondering how, the, based on the feedback that you've gotten so far, how are you, how are you feeling about it all? Yeah. Um, there's kind of like two parts, I would say, that I feel to it. When I think about, some of these institutions, you know, yes, just like what you said, like they will like, you know, scale a mountain to find um, these white designers that they really want to celebrate. And I, you know, that's that model that they had. I, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but like a long time ago um, when Eden was still around, I interviewed for that creative director role. And I remember like the woman who had it before me had never even been to Africa when she got that job. And um, it's just so weird to me, like how we, or how the industry rather um, makes these decisions and how they kind of value understanding, like truly understanding the black community. Um, I'm an optimist by nature. So I always wanna hope that, and, and believe that, that people really are going to make the right choices. Um, I know for me, I personally am super optimistic. Um, you know, the great part about black women in specific as, as business owners is that we're incredibly resourceful and we listen and we learn and we don't stop fighting. And the win for me in all of this is that, you know, while I have been learning and growing this entire time since I created Brother Valley, we've created an incredible community um that loves and supports the brand and you know direct to consumer for me has always for the past three years been the backbone of my business out of necessity um and it's alive and well and we 
you know, are growing year after year. And this year for us has been absolutely incredible. So like, I'm very optimistic about my own business and my own customer base. And like, we're growing and I'm super excited about that. And I'm so stoked about all of the companies that we're in communication with right now who are going to take the flex. Cause I know that like, we're doing the work and we're excited about it. And those people's teams are on board and are like, how can we do this? Let's go, let's do this. Let's figure out where we're flawed and let's fix it. You know, um, I don't know about those other people. <laughs> I don't know what's <laughs> gonna happen to them. <laughs> but like, I know, and I'm so excited about like the ones that are stepping up to do the work. Because I truly, Robin, truly from my soul, like love fashion. I was like born and raised with a mom who loves fashion, who would be like, this is how we understood culture. This was how we talked about history. This was how we talked about expression. This was how we talked about empowerment. Like this was our tool to communicate, you know? And when, when, when we would see something, when we would go somewhere and we would travel, she would be like, I think this needs to be archived, you know? This is good. And so I asked myself that when I'm making something too. When every, anytime I'm creating something, like, is this, truly archival what is it saying about the world what is it saying about this moment you know when 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 my customers put a shoe on and another woman sees them on the street wearing that shoe there's like a connection that happens there right they're connecting because they know me they know the story they know brother valleys know what it represents and i think that that for me is like a really important experience and having the autonomy to be a fashion designer and create products while also creating a nonprofit, while also advocating for change, while also pushing people to get out and vote this year, that's like, <laughs> that's freedom, that's luxury, that's the point. Like, that's what I want our logo to represent. That's a modern woman, Robin. Well, I think that is like the best note to, to end on because I think it sums up everything that fashion can and should be. And yes. it has been such a great pleasure chatting with you. I wish we had more time. Um, but if anyone wants to see highlights or see this entire interview, you can go to WashingtonPostLive.com and you'll also see uh, upcoming interviews. So have a great afternoon and thank you so much, Aurora. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.